Audio conversation recorded May 1st, 2010. I stumbled onto Gibbs Williams through a site called Synchronicity, which is completely appropriate. And uh, he's a he's a practicing psychoanalyst in New York City, and he just published a book called Demystifying Meaningful Coincidences. Uh, it's an academic look at the subject of coincidences. He started off... Oh, as a de facto, that's a term he uses, a de facto Jungian. And at a certain point, he diverged from Jung's teachings on synchronicities and came up with his own uh, conclusions. And deeply personal stuff, drawing on his own life experiences, as Jung did. And he was a fascinating person to talk with. I will say part of the reason that I got the courage to, to share with him is his office is right down the street from where I first moved in New York City. And it just, uh, um, that made it easy in a way for me to, to reach out and, and uh, get a hold of this guy. The conversation is delightful. I will warn you ahead of time that the audio quality is poor in some spots. It does get better as the conversation proceeds. So the quality is low, the content is high. Uh, we, we really, we really um, dig deep. And we also, um, I share a lot of personal stories, and so does he. You know, in this framework of, of, uh, of trying to dissect something as mysterious and complicated as synchronicities, uh, we do use personal stories to, to try to uncover um, something that, that seems quite elusive. I hope you enjoy it. I, th- I thought it went great. Enjoy. Hello. Hello, Gibbs. This is Mike Cloland. Great. How are you? Good. Good. How are you? Fine. Actually, I had a fantastic day. I went to... Um, I told you I was going to that scientific meeting of synchronicities, mm. and I went. It was packed at the Harvard Club. It was uh, standing room only. They were talking about uh, new contributions and synchronicities. They mentioned my name twice, which was really great. Oh, good. It was very unexpected and very nice. Then when I went up and met them, they were very gracious. And one of them said that um, they were having a brunch this morning. So I went. (laughs) It was lovely. And then, in the afternoon, I met uh, Bud Hopkins. You're familiar? Oh, I'll tell you some stories about Bud Hopkins and I. And I met with him, renewed our uh, friendship, gave him a a book, and... uh, talked with him for three and a half hours. So it was an extremely an unusual social day for me. It was very nice, very productive. Good. good. Well, thank you for saying yes to this. My pleasure. Glad and, you're around. And um, the way I stumbled on your work was, uh, you know, I'm actually not even sure. I think there's a website called Synchronicity run by Rob and Trish McGregor. Yes. And I think yes. it was through their site that I, that I just yes, followed the link. I've been, on, link there. And I've been on there a few times. And how did you how did you come to um, take up this this uh, you know studying this very uh, peripheral uh, and sometimes out, you know dismissed and sometimes dismissed with contempt I think um, you know very real phenomena. I am seventy three years old, and when I was nineteen, I guess considerably younger at this point, I was very confused, but. I think as long as I remember, I was the kind of person who I guess is referred to as a truth seeker, interested in the very big questions, who am I, where am I from, what's going on, what's my purpose, is there a purpose, how do you know, all that kind of thing. So I was, um, I guess, a natural uh, speculative philosopher, always interested in the area. I guess out of my confusion, 
I um, fortunately discovered what was new at the time, which were paperbacks. And my brother and I in Florida used to uh, travel to uh, the city of Miami and go to a little uh, newspaper place and pick up the latest paperback of the week, a mentor paperback. And among the books that I picked up was The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant. And I read it, and I was shocked in a good way, believing, well, feeling that I was able to understand guys 2,000 years old, Plato, Aristotle, Spinoza, so forth, that made more sense to me than any of my contemporaries, including my parents. So I felt, I felt validated. Um, before I felt I was looked at, and um, I used to fool around asking people the nature of reality, and I was sort of half kidding, and I was half serious. And of course, they'd look at me like I was out of my mind, which was only half true. At that point, I also got interested in astrology, and that led me into an interest in studying the esoteric occult. And that becomes important in the fact that when I went to Columbia University and had a breakdown when I was in my sophomore year, it wasn't quite as dramatic as all that, but it threw me into a uh, four-year psychotherapy experience, which I dutifully went to twice um, a week and came out of it feeling more confused than when I went into it. So I felt as if I failed psychotherapy. And what happened that um, was the quintessence of my experience um, was I would dream two-page dreams and bring them into my therapist. And I think I did that because he liked them, so I think I probably wanted approval. And he would sit there for the balance of the session and read these things and interpret them. And I would listen to him in awe, wondering, how did he do that? coming away with very little insight in terms of myself, going home, uh, going to my uh, small dorm, um, writing in my journal, which turned out to be a 37-year production, and analyze my dreams. So in other words, it was a split experience. I really wouldn't talk to him about what I really felt. I would go listen to the master, uh, tell me all about what he thought I was, find it remarkable, but feeling as if it had little to do with me. Mm Given the fact that I left feeling as badly as I did when I went in, that led me to uh, have a resurgence of my interest in the esoteric occult. And when I look back, that's not coincidental because it promised a sense of unity and wholeness, which I was really looking for. And it was only... Years later, when I realized in doing uh, research on synchronicities, that to me, the esoteric occult and all of that ancient wisdom and all that kind of stuff is really the precursors of what has now become self-psychology. So it's no coincidence that I was attracted to it. In any event, during that sophomore year, where I was uh, getting increasingly more dissociated, I would paint at night. Um, just for fun, and I painted a um, round, I guess it was a sun, and it was um, superimposed on this uh, brilliant dark background. So the contrast was quite striking, 
and I called it the sun at midnight, and I take a look at my clock, and it was exactly midnight, and that was important because I had been reading the um, Upanishads where it was talking about four elements, you know, fire, air, earth, and water, and somehow I correlated all the stuff together, and it had tremendous sense of uh, vitality, and that was really my first kind of small but meaningful coincidence, and I was struck by the um, energy that I felt, because I, I was really very passive. I, I felt I was very inert. I couldn't get the motor started, or if I got it started, I couldn't uh, stop it. And this first synchronicity captured my attention, and then four years later, I had the second of what became subsequently 19 of these things uh, peppered through my journal over a period of 20 years, and each one seemed to have this, um, well, you know what people feel, you know, you scratch your head and you say, how could that be? It's amazing. And then given the fact that I was interested from a philosophical point of view and majored in philosophy at Columbia, I started to push this thing and became more than what many people do, which has become what I call luminosity junkies. So they just collect all these stories and they're dazzled and all that. And I went on to ask questions like, you know, what, what, are, what are the implications of this stuff? What's going on? Of course, most people, including me, felt initially that it was a sign from some uh, mysterious transcendent force, and maybe the world is spiritualized, and there's a consciousness out there, and it's directing uh, coded messages from some arcane source and so forth. And then, um, as I say, though, I, I had a series of these things which I became increasingly more interested in. So I guess it was the initial shock of it in a good way, and then the journal was peppered throughout with a whole bunch of these things, and I guess... Um, being the kind of person I am, I just got increasingly more fascinated. And, and as I started to read the literature, I realized, boy, this is a hell of an interesting subject. My first real job in psychology was in 1966 when I got a very lucky break, which on the break on the back of a synchronicity, I was one of the founders of a uh, radical, not radical, a uh, innovative therapeutic community in New York City. Uh, called Odyssey House, and I was able to um, get in on the front lines of uh, treating uh, drug addicts. So that was really my baptism of fire. And then since then, I've had a, I went on to become a, a psychoanalyst and trainer, and I do teaching and so forth. This is fascinating, and, and just um, my my writing is uh, is all about synchronicities. Uh, and then with sort of a subtopic of UFOs and and sort of paranormal events. Uh, and how does like the paranormal sort of work its way into this as well as, uh, well, that becomes interesting in the, um, in more recent years. Now, let's see, how did I meet Bud Hopkins? Bud Hopkins, somebody who knew Bud Hopkins of UFO fame, or some people think infamy, calls me up about 10 or 12 day, uh, years ago and invites me to be a psychologist sitting in on his Intruders Foundation, um, which, of course, is uh, composed of people who believe uh, that they were abducted. And I went, and I participated in a monthly meeting for about a year, 
And during that year, it was a fascinating year because I was also able to become friends with and tested Linda Cortile, who anybody in this field knows that the Linda case uh, is one of those um, really seminal cases. Yeah, the witness uh, book that, that Bud Hopkins wrote. That's quite important. Yeah, that's, that's who it was. Better if I just called it before we talked to reintroduce myself. Um, so that was really fascinating. And, uh, and I guess, you know, synchronicities and UFO and all that are all part of what I would think are anomalous experiences. So I've always been attracted to those kind of things. And, um, Half of me has been skeptical, and the other half has been uh, wide open. I'm still open to whatever. That's a good combo, those two. Yeah, it's good. I, I, I think that's uh, refreshing. So I, I have rather definite opinions which are bendable if there's new evidence that comes in. And were you working with, with Bud's uh, clients, patients? No, I never, um, I never got a... Uh, client or patient from there, um, no. And were you doing any sort of, um, I mean, did you did you interact with many of his folks, just on a, a whether a professional level? Or? Oh, I, I was quite interested, and I did, I started a couple of papers um, trying to look at it, uh, the whole phenomenon from uh, a psychodynamic point of view, and did come up with some, I think, rather interesting uh, findings that, for example, most of these people start having experiences around five years old. And I know from personal experience, as well as the literature, that five is a time, if there's any difficulties in the uh, psychological atmosphere at the homes, these are times when people start having um, fantasies of uh, adoption and that they are convinced that they cannot be from this particular family and that, you know, it's only a little stretch to figure that uh, abduction, adoption is not all that far away, and particularly if you start at five, and kids often uh, will blur the boundaries between fantasy and reality, or in more technical terms, primary process and secondary process. So it doesn't strike me as coincidental that abductees, if this, um, if this is an accurate uh, statement would begin to uh, have their experiences around that time. So you see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Any anecdote? I mean, did you do a proper study or was this just anecdotal information? No, this is mainly anecdotal information. And I was always a theorist, so I started to uh, form the theory of the week and uh, fit the material into it and so forth. I didn't really develop it very far, but it uh, certainly interested me. I've actually been interviewing a lot of of folks that have this, uh, that claim this experience. And... um, interacting personally with them and one of the things that comes up as far as a pattern is uh a creative types and you can just i don't know if you see this at all but um creative types folks that are that are artists folks that are in some sort of creative oh i don't think there's any doubt about it if you get back to synchronicities i am utterly convinced that the key to success and and i I come out in my 54-year investigation i came out with a book uh I guess it's been two months, where I have a completely original uh, naturalistic interpretation. And from my vantage point, these things are generated, self, self-generated messages, which come about uh, starting with a seemingly unresolvable problem. And if there is an attitude to being stuck, which is, instead of caving in and giving up, we're just remaining stuck, to press on 
for an answer, no matter what. I believe it um, stimulates one's idiosyncratic creative process, and then you go on what I would call a psychological scavenger hunt, where you're searching for clues, and the clues take the form of bits of information or feelings or sensations or dreams or whatever, which act as sort of jigsaw puzzle pieces, which when you put them together in meaningful connections, eventually make a pattern. When that pattern is recognized, it is experienced by people as a synchronicity. Oh my gosh, you are describing, you've just summed up my life in the last few years. Uh, keep going. <laughs> now, that message, that synchronicity, which really is an answer to your original problem, is in coded form, so it has to be interpreted like a waking dream. But that's my theory in a nutshell. And it tends to, it tends to, it, it works. It, I've had thousands of uh, applications of this, both from my own 19, which become the core of my book, and then many patients, I have many patients, I've had a few patients who have been what I call synchronicity prone, who, uh, without asking, gave me their journals peppered with synchronicities, and I've been able to validate my theory through the progression of them and understanding them in the course of uh, a long-term analysis. Wow, okay, this is, this is fascinating, because I would certainly, I feel like I would um, uh, qualify as one of those synchronicity prone individuals, and it's something that's that's only happened um, in the last few years for me. It seems to have ramped up, and and uh, seems like some some mystical force behind the curtain has turned the dial up, or whether you know some some part of me internally has turned the dial up. Well, let me tell you, you want to hear some findings? Sure. You know, that uh, have to do with this. I believe that these things are really really terribly important for a number of reasons. First of all, they're on the cutting edge of this whole preoccupation with uh, science and spirituality and or the evolving of uh, consciousness. Or is the world really spiritualized? And what do we mean by that? What's spirituality? And so on. So it's really, it's not an unimportant uh, issue. Now, so what are my, what are my findings? I have found, A, that at least the people I work with, and I'll be one of them, uh, start out as relatively dissociated individuals. What do I mean by dissociated? These are usually very creative people, very smart. Uh, they often had my same interest. They were interested in the big questions, philosophical questions, which are, of course, hard to answer, but they're interested in them nevertheless. They often come out of families that really do not understand them. And it's like <laughs> apples and oranges. Okay, keep going. I'm and sorry, I had to laugh. Of, I had to laugh. That's all right. And then out of the misunderstandings, if it happens early enough, there is a defensive process called identification with the aggressor, where the person often feels something's wrong with this picture. In order to preserve your sanity, you have to turn it around. If, you, if you're the jerk, if you're the problem child, then if you can figure out what your problem is, then you can find a way to make yourself whole and lovable and then move on and do great things. So it's really twisted. It's a twisted kind of logic which is in the service of self-protection. Now, let's say I'm right for the moment. I may not be, but at least for certain people, I, I am. So let's take 
this divided self. That's what it really amounts to. You've got a really creative person who's really a basically good person if they were supported and validated, but they're not. And that identity quest means that the divided self is trying to become whole. By the way, if you read Jung, this is Jung, this is Jung's story, so it's no coincidence to me that he starts out trying to find meaningful connections, which is basically the whole idea behind meaningful coincidences. So, what am I talking about? A dissociated self uh, suffers basically from a difficulty in egocentesis. So they have vast um, areas of information. I, th I believe in this idea of streams of information. So there's ideas, uh, intuitions, bodily sensations, and feelings. They are prone to all of those things, and they're usually hypersensitive to all of them. But when it comes to putting all the information together, they often cannot do it, and they will know that there is a fundamental set of splits, and they're trying to reconcile the splits. Now, the difficulty is, if you go back to the very beginning, where they took the position that something's fundamentally wrong with them, then in a curious way, they're moving towards wholeness, but they can't be whole, because if they're whole, they're going to recognize the initial experience that they were fundamentally isolated and unloved and not comprehended. So in other words, the thing they want the most is often the thing they can't have. That doesn't mean that they don't keep pushing towards integration. From my vantage point, the peppering of synchronicities, no matter where it comes, this is the key point, is really a quest for meaningful connections with the self and the object world. And when you have a person who is what I would call synchronicity prone, they each synchronicity is an attempt to close the dissociated gaps. And if you look at a run of synchronicities, or people who have runs of synchronicities, whether they're frequent, or in my case, they would go like years apart, sometimes two days, sometimes five years, sometimes um, three months, and so forth. It didn't matter. As I viewed each one of these 19 synchronicities as a sequence, I discovered that they were always the resolution to a particular self-problem, and when you added up the nature of the particular problem, there was a clear progression leading to various aspects of plugging in my synthetic process where I could make myself increasingly more whole. And each time is the important part. With each synchronicity, once I experienced it, there was no question in my mind that there was a subsequent expansion of consciousness with increased powers. And it's sort of as if, if you imagine climbing um, a big mountain, and each leg of the mountain is a particular problem that you have to negotiate. And once you have that problem, it becomes the end of a particular quest for that space that you've acquired and mastered. So it's the end of the search for an answer to that problem, but it becomes a beginning for the next leg of the journey. So it's both you know, completion and new problem, completion, new problem, completion, new problem. So each synchronicity marks an evolution of consciousness 
in each person towards the um, aim of a solid identity that's in, uh, from the vantage point of beingness and then being able to access powers so you can use them for creative purposes. Oh, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. It's very interesting because I feel like you're talking about me in a lot of this. I feel like... Uh, great, great. I, I, I hope that's true, that you'll, uh, you'll check this out and let me know what you think. Well, I'm checking it out right now in the sense that this is, this dialogue is, is, is kind of me checking this out. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I, you know, my, uh, I grew up, I was creative. I was a young, very creative, drawing all the time and sometimes like dynamically creating. And my parents were very, um, uh, both my parents are still alive, and, and, uh, but they were, you know, very conservative and very, and I wonder how they would look at this. You know, I think they were challenged trying to deal with my uh, creativity. And, you know, they were very kind and very loving, but at the same time, I think that they didn't know how to, to best support my, you know, the sort of dynamism that was involved in Let me in give my... you a concept and see if this works. And this is why I think this uh, phenomenon and understanding is so important. Most people tend to be trapped in what I would call black-white thinking, and you know if you apply that idea to what's going on in general, how many uh, people or how many books have you read when they're talking about the interface between science and spirituality, and the books in a cliche way will start talking about we're trapped in by, what is it, um, dichotomous thinking. It's either this way or that way. Yeah. And we gotta we gotta make a transformation where you get beyond the dualities and get to singularity or unity or cosmic consciousness or whatever the hell they're talking about. Psychodynamically they're talking about being caught in black white thinking. Now I had an analyst who uh, in my analysis of uh, eleven years three times a week illustration as to the way he talked and why it so fit me. He would say to me constantly in between black and white are not shades of gray. There are colors. And it, I think what's happening is the people who are synchronous and prone and are just not dazzled by whatever the magic show is, but really want to understand the implications, what makes the watch tick. These are people, I think, who are literally starting to experience themselves and reality through the lens of much more complex experiencing. So instead of black-white thinking, these are people who really are aware, literally, of colors. And the two major psychodynamic uh, issues that I find among synchronicity-prone people that they are struggling with, that everybody struggles with, but particularly these people, are the issue of complexity and ambivalence. And, and second, what's the second one? Ambivalence. Ambivalence. Okay. Love-hate. And these are the major issues as to what drives people into therapy, no matter what their diagnostic, uh, you know, uh, labels are. Those are the two major issues that, that people tend to be tortured by. And you have to have a very particular kind of perspective to be able to help them through this. Now, my major, I think my major contribution is to um, help people in a, in a transitional way, go from an almost exclusive reliance on linear logic or linear causality and be able to help them move from an almost exclusive uh, over-reliance on that kind of logic to 
adding messy feelings, which is the ambivalence and complexity, and moving what I would call from linear logic to experiential. And I've observed that people who are particularly synchronicity prone, they have more time or their runs of these things, are literally in a transition between conventional linear logic and they're moving towards this more complex logic. This is fascinating. Here's a, um, and I've been very open about this on the blog in my own writing and my online stuff, and I've been very open about this in my life. I have a, a long history since I was about 16, maybe younger, of um, clinical depression and, and at times uh, severe clinical depression. Most of the people that come in who are suffering from this come in clinically depressed and or have an aversion, have an absolute aversion to basic issues of frustration, anxiety, um, um, anxiety, frustration, depression, and stress. And that's the first order of business to help them experience these things as normal, not pop a pill, and learn how to tolerate them because if they can do that, that is the pathway to a spontaneous um, experience of a cohesive self. By the way, what I just said is not generally subscribed to, and it is a crime that we are in a culture where psychiatrists who should know better will take this issue, affect and tolerance, and almost instantly prescribe medicine, which is absolutely contrary to what is natural. This is interesting, and I will say that I um, spent seven years, uh, 100% of the time, on Prozac. And I found, it, I found it very beneficial uh, for most of the time. If I did a little flow chart of those years... Yeah, you'll feel better. It was, yeah, it was, no question, you'll feel better. And I, made, I felt like I made good progress. I did a good. lot of... Uh, by, the way, by the way, I want you to understand, I am not knocking medicine in and of itself. I am saying, however that the more natural way, which is to uh, incorporate or, or, or induce a shift in attitude towards these particular issues, should be at least tried first. As far as working with the, um, the folks who claim the abduction phenomena, yeah, um, was there a pattern with them as far as uh, depression? Because that's actually something I've seen uh, when I talk to these folks. You know, I didn't get into it enough. I'm inclined... Uh, I, I know that they were just what we described. They're very creative types. They were they thought out of the box. Uh, they were not terribly understood. Um, I guess the, the official name is dissociated or relatively schizoid. Uh, I didn't I didn't really go further. I didn't I didn't understand these concepts. Yeah, I um. So here's here's my relationship with Bud. Uh, Bud and I. I this would have been 2007. Um, I met Bud, and I did a um, attempted a hypnotherapy session with him. Uh, oh, great. I didn't go under very well, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and I did at the time I was working on a documentary. This is interesting. Uh, and I uh, we attempted to videotape the the uh, hypnosis session. And I think just the added stress of having the camera in the room. The camera was on, and the the camera person uh, walked out of the room. Yeah, but, you could become too self-conscious. Yeah, there was a level of, of nervousness yeah. that was associated with that. But I consider this is interesting because Bud, a uh, very polarizing uh, character, even you know in on many realms. You know the folks that even among the 
people who claim to have the abduction experience. He's a polarizing character. But uh, I what, found what him... What do you mean? What do you mean polarizing? Well, some people will think that he's too... Uh, you know, some people who experience these these events, the, the experiences will be of such bizarre, high strangeness right. and such theatrically wild stories of, of such weirdness right, right. that... Um, that oftentimes, the, if it the assumption is, and this is how it comes off oftentimes in his books, and I will also say that interacting with him one on one, he's not as rigid as as he comes across in his written work. Um, that uh, that it seems like if there's outlying uh, data points, things that are just too weird or things that don't fit the big picture, he dismisses those outlying data points. That's that's the perception in certain parts of the of well, the community. And and a lot of people think like that's where the action is. Those outlying data points are where um you know people who talk about having um oh and for instance I've asked him about synchronicities and he was he listened to me and entertained it and then had a few very peripheral stories and um and I actually asked him and this is on film. I was I was interviewing him for for this documentary and uh and he said um you know, I said, what about the really weird stuff, the really strange stuff? And then he said, well, that stuff exists. And he actually made this, uh, this gesture with his hands. And it looked like, it looked like, um, like if someone spilled water on a table and he just kind of made this gesture, like the water was splattering all over the place and his fingertips kind of, you know, moved farther and farther apart. And he said, if I had to gather all that stuff in, and then he gestured, you know, scooping it all back in, um, these books that I work on would just be, would be, you know, endless. They'd be impossible to finish because there's so much stuff that comes out. And as a writer, oh, so I have as, to... As, as if you were overloaded, doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. I'm that paraphrasing a little bit from memory, yeah, but that, that's interesting. that feels pretty accurate. But, um, yeah. and then I, I will say... Way, that's not my impression of him. I, I, I find him uh, um, remarkably uh, fair-minded, very open-minded, and tries to be truly as objective as he can. Though I can see where you're going with this, it's very interesting. Well, and it's interesting because this is—I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing both Bud and I'm paraphrasing folks that that are that claim this experience. Where, um, uh, you know, there's—I mean, I've talked to people who've who've met, you know, in these UFO experiences, have met, you know, uh, out and out humans with military uniforms. They've met. Uh, uh, giant lizards. They've met, um, you know, benevolent, loving angels. They've, right, you know, the so, and the whole yeah. Thing. So it seems that he's his focus is mm. is um, especially in his written work is a little more is a little more. Um, uh, you know, he, he he tends not to stray from that periphery. But I will say he did publish a book. His last book was besides the uh, the memoir. The one before that was called um, Sight Unseen. And in that book, he does delve very deeply into these to these outlying uh, experiences, and and I, and, I, and, I, and consequently, I think that's that's the book I'm most impressed with, as far as well. It's uh, conceivable that in his own uh, development, of uh, which I know something about, his own consciousness has uh, very possibly uh, shifted, which uh, accounts for why he would seem to be um, maybe more uh, available to that kind of stuff. Well, I can't imagine anyone sort of stepping into this arena and not having their consciousness, you know, shifted. Um, you know, it would be very difficult to, to remain uh, impartial. And what's that? What's the right choice? I would, uh, I would agree. Yeah. Oh, by the way, by the way, you know, Alan um, is it Steinfeld. Alan Steinfeld from from New York. 
Yeah. Yes, I've met him. Yes, I know him. Well, I met him at Bud's. I, I went the other night and saw Bud and, uh, and um, Jacobs. What's his name? David Jacobs. David Jacobs, right. They gave a thing, and I and I and right next to me, I brought my book along as I was due uh, for advertising possibilities. And fortunately, this guy who was uh, a character he's in my shoes looks over and says, "Oh, that's really interesting. Tell me about that." So I did, and he turns out to be uh, New Realities. Oh, I was going to say that you actually did quite a good Im- imitation of him. That was exactly how he would sound. I could see him very clearly. Oh, he's a funny, guy, very yeah. funny guy. In any event, we've been discussing, uh, I think I'm going to get an interview with him uh, very shortly, but in any event, he turned me on to a paper in the last couple of days that absolutely excited me. I would imagine you'd know about it. Um, you, we talked um, about this briefly when we set up the interview. It's called Countering Alien Otherness by Michael that Zimmerman. That is a really, that's a breakthrough paper. I will, so I will, my um, vantage point, it's got all these, I can, I can really see the way now to doing an objective investigation, and, and, and it gives me, it's a pathway to, uh, to at least take my thing and uh, uh, use it as a filter. I, it's great. It's very exciting. I'll, I'll put a link to that on the, uh, in the, uh, in the Powerful. Room. It's yeah. a very powerful paper, yeah. in my opinion. And that was Alan Seinfeld that turned you on to that? Yeah. Oh, this is so funny. He shows oh, up over and over and over, and over again. He's very knowledgeable. He knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> this is so interesting. Here I have a so so um I'll tell you a synchronistic story. This is actually sort of funny. I uh that involves Alan Steinfeld a little bit. I met this woman at a UFO conference. Her name is Natasha. We got along wonderfully. The the conference was in Laughlin, Nevada. It lasted eight days, so we spent mm-hmm. a good part oh, of that great. eight days together. It was very great. intense. She was very very much uh uh at the first stages of her coming to terms with some events in her life that would point mm-hmm. to direct UFO contact experience. Um, I drove her to the Las Vegas airport, and when I drove her there, she had her iPod, and she said, oh, let's listen to some music. So she put on some music, and there was this friends of hers, and it was a husband and wife that were playing this uh, music. And we listened for a while, and, and uh, they, I think they were, they were American, but they were living in Germany, and she was German. Um, later, I met... Uh, Alan Seinfeld at another conference in New Jersey. I was right across. It was in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, the Cultural mm-hmm. Contact Conference, which happened in October of '08. And this husband and wife performed. Mm-hmm. And there they were, like, you know, and it was in this weird old theater, and it was this giant theater, and it was quite. Oh, great. And, and it was quite beautiful and quite um, uh, yeah. eerie, you know, the music itself. And so. Yeah. Uh, I talked to Alan and I said, Oh, I'm a friend of Natasha's and he knows Natasha. And right. then I said, we should meet for dinner. So we made an appointment and, and two days later we met for dinner and who walks in, but this couple and, Oh, that's nice. And I talked to them. That's great. And I say, you know, like, you know, Natasha. And oh, they said, of great. course we know Natasha. Now, this is where it gets strange. Yeah. Natasha has yeah. her own, she's her own, uh, synchronistic machine. Now this is where it gets strange. I told Natasha that I met them and she was very excited that I got to meet them, but they weren't the same people that she played the music for. I saw these two people just assumed they were the same people. How interesting. And, and, uh, they weren't, but yeah. in, at the same time, they, they, I just knew that they knew Natasha. 
Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's a good one. So, so um, bottom line, Natasha knows everybody. <laughs> and this is very funny. We picked up a hitchhiker of all in in uh, Sedona, Arizona, and he was uh-huh. friends with Alan Seinfeld. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Of course, of course, from what I know of Sedona, everybody is synchronicity pro. Sedona is its own little it's its own little yeah. vortex within a vortex. Yeah. It's, now it's... here is where on the surface. I would pull out, I think, a much underused concept uh, that instead of the collective unconscious, I like the idea of the collective consciousness. You know, likes attract likes. Sure. That if you're into this thing, you tend to really be passionate about it, and you don't, uh, you know, stick with one thing. If you tend to be, to gather information and names and so forth, and uh, the community is... I'm not sure how large it is, but it's, um, you know, people tend to know, and, and, uh, and particularly with the Internet. I mean, Google, you, you name anything, Google anything, and instantaneously you have a whole universe of whatever the subject matter is. Very much so, and and the and the the synchronistic properties of the internet it seemed to have its it's almost like it's got its own sentient consciousness. Oh, there's no question about it. Yeah, no question. And and it's fascinating, and I in it in it um oh it seems like the science fiction novel is unfolding before our very eyes. I mean, the internet is is this this contraption, this machine, this tool that's only twenty years old in in its inception. And I will say that that I have stepped into this arena oh very actively by putting up this this written blog online and and this whether it's synchronicities or just people out there very eager to make connections um i have had my inbox filled with people who have written me and sometimes confused and sometimes uh, passionate letters just trying to you know them sharing their experiences and well, often, let me tell you, if i may let me let me give you a plug I, I know most of the stuff that's around. I think I know most of the stuff that's around because I keep on uh, you know, plugging in uh, current research and so forth. Uh, the McGregors, and if you know who they are, yep. he, they wrote the, the Lost Ark thing. You know, they're really uh, quite uh, notable, noteworthy. And boy, are they plugging their new book that's going to come out in August. They got about 5,000 hits of uh, people who are relating all these incidences. They are marketing geniuses. In any event... Their, their website is pretty good, but yours is about 400,000 times better. You have the absolutely, from what I have seen, a stupendous blog. It is, first of all, it's gorgeous in terms of the way you've done it, but it's got a presence that I just love. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. And I'll say that what I did for 10 years in New York is I was an art director. You know, I cut my teeth in advertising and... and um just writing in very short sentences, uh, make sure not to have uh, silly puns and headlines, you know, just make sure the headline is a headline. No, and, you're serious. I mean, but you're, you're, but you're real, you're authentic, but uh, you've got, you got substance. Very oh, few people uh, have this. Oh, that's good to hear, because I, I take it very seriously in the sense that the blog has, uh, has consumed a lot uh, of my energy. It's, it's, it, it's worth it. You, uh, you'll do, continue to do very well with this. Good, good, and and it's interesting because recently I've been adding these audio downloads onto it, and this has been very, very rewarding. Did you see the um, the blog that we put up, my brother and I, called meaningful coincidences dot com? You know, I I've been searching around. I spent a little time this afternoon searching around, and it was one of the things I did look at. 
It's, it's, it's reasonably okay. We like to see it as a kind of compendium of uh, high-level uh, synchronicity material for purposes of research. References to very good papers and uh, so forth. Yes, I did look at that one. Yeah, and I'll put that one up as a link. And that one had those. That was just had a lot of hyperlinks as far as other articles. Yeah, it's and got other a lot websites. of hyperlinks, but it's, it's yeah. uh, they're, they're pretty good. Um, if anybody's seriously interested in uh, uh, deep research, these are good links. Hey, how is the book doing? You know, it's interesting. Now it's been out for two months. First of all, it's from an academic press. It's a good press. So it's got a certain degree of prestige, which is good and not good. Because it's an academic book, it's not a crossover book, which means, so it's only online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. That's good, but it's not good. Because it's 70 bucks. who the hell these days is going to come out with $70 to buy a book? That's insane. So it's discounted to fifty two fifty. Marvelous. Well, not marvelous, because it should be paperback. Then it would come out for 20 Then I think I would do very well. All right, bottom line, so how have I been doing? I was told the other day that when I called the publisher, they said that I had sold 25 books. Um, and these aren't giveaways or uh, uh, what do you call it, review books and all that. actually sold 25 in two weeks in April. Now, I'm scared to recall and to find out, but I guess the truth of it is not bad. Who knows? But so far, I've had a lot of attention, and I keep on... In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be giving a workshop with a, um, a spiritual... What are they called? The Association for Spirituality... For Psychoanalysis and Spirituality. And I'm going to be uh, giving my presentation, and there are two Jungian therapists that are going to uh, be discussing this, which is terrific, because it's the first time that I'll be up against... Uh, uh, even the Red Book thing. I can't wait to see how that's going to be received. Because my, my, my approach is, uh, it's not exactly anti-Union, but it's not exactly pro either. Yeah, and it's very interesting because it seems like the, the Jungian thing shows up much more in this, uh, oh, I mean, just the fact that he coined the term synchronicity on one level. Well, he's had the almost undisputed um, uh, titular head. He's been the big cheese for 54 years. There's only one other person by the name of M.D. Faber and myself, who's, they're both fairly current, who's attempted to have a thorough um, theory based upon uh, a naturalistic approach, a non-mystical, non-magical approach. So this, you know, so this thing potentially has a lot of um, dust-up possibilities. Well, it's interesting because the synchronicities that, ex ex uh, that happen... Uh, when you insp you know when you look at them, they are mystical and magical. They are experienced as. But here's the point: from a dissociated person. Oh, let me give you the best analogy for this. I'm talking to my analyst, and I'm talking about wanting to mention a lot of times about my interesting coincidences, of which he was uh, very nicely uh, receptive and asked me more. And I remember saying to him. You know, I just can't get started. I have all these ideas, but I keep accumulating material, and I just can't put it down right or whatever. He says to me, one day when you feel like you've got enough to say and you feel confident in saying it, you will write your book. And it was interesting because he said, if you'd like to, give me your journals, and I'll be happy to read it. And I said, fine, never did it because I was always shy and uh, figured I would make a fool out of myself. In any event, he said, 
I think he gave me a compliment or something, or, or somebody gave me a compliment on the work that I did show. And I felt like it was nice to hear, but I couldn't process it. And that's often what people who have these things feel. They, they know they've got it, but they can't experience it. And he said, this is a little bit like being the author of a very well-received play. And you go to see it, and you're sitting next to a friend of yours, and as you're looking at your play unfolding, you're, you're really quite taken with it, and you're quite impressed, and you say to the friend, gee, this is a really great play. I wonder who wrote it. And that's the feeling. So these messages that are self-generated are often experienced as if they come from some mystical, magical source. They're really coming from the self, but because the self is divided, it can't process it. That's the point. But the, still, I'm just thinking of my own set of experiences where these synchronicities are so magical in their in their in how on earth did they unfold the way they unfolded? That did did it some did somehow I control it with? Let me give you a three-step process, which I've discovered is a way to interpret, and you can take all your synchronicities and do the following. A, you must keep a detailed journal. And I'm doing and that unlike, in, the, in the format of this blog. And unlike a diary, you put in to the journal whatever moves you, what you're doing. So your blog is your journal. Okay, and of course it's all dated. Number two, every so often you will have a synchronicity. You take the synchronicity of the moment, you date it, you shove it into in this case, the blog material or your journal material, and you put, you know, the dates similarly. So, so you wrote, you wrote in the journal on the 16th, you had a synchronicity on the 17th, you stick it in, and on the 18th, you're talking about the whole thing. So it all dovetails. All right. Third step. You take the particular synchronicity. Let me backtrack. In terms of the blog material, your journal, you want to, from time to time, identify the major preoccupation. If you think the way I think, there is always a major issue that is something that you are exploring or you're trying to understand or whatever. Now, of course, there's always an amazing amount of material, but even then, it tends to, to reduce itself to a particular theme, and that theme will be um, explored until you resolve that theme, and you go on to some other theme. Does that dovetail with your experience? Very much so. Okay. So you get the theme of the moment. Once you have the theme of the moment, it usually takes the form of a particular problem that you want to solve, and because it seems seemingly unresolvable, or whatever attempts to resolve it don't seem to square, it doesn't do justice to the complexity of the problem. So you're sort of left hanging. But... If you have the attitude, I'm going to keep on trying to get a good answer. I'm not particularly optimistic about getting one because it seems unresolvable, but I'm going to continue to do it. Okay. In the midst of this, you'll have one or more synchronicities. Step three. You make an association between the details of the synchronicity and your problem. And what you're looking for is a um, now try this and see if this if this uh, meets your um, 
experience. You know Jung and the famous or infamous Scarab synchronicity? Yep. All right. From my vantage point, when you go into detail, of which, by the way, has scant detail, and for a guy who um, has an enormous amount of detail, he doesn't date the Scarab experience, which he says is the most impressive synchronicity he had. And I wrote to a woman who recently came out with a definitive biography, 700-page biography. Um, I forget her first name, but her second name is Bear, B-A-I-R. And I said to her, isn't it curious that Jung never dates the synchronicity? She wrote back and she says, you're absolutely right. I have no idea why not. It is seemingly in the middle of the 20s, so it's probably someplace around 1925. In any event, if you look at the scant details that he describes in, uh, in going over the um, Scarab incident, it is mainly his synchronicity. It is much less his patient, and I can tell you that's so, because he never says to her, what does this event mean to you? And the fact that he interprets the Scarib as an ancient Egyptian symbol for rebirth is very interesting, and interesting that he knows all that, and of course he knew everything, certainly about mythology and archetypes and all that. But if he had said to her, and what does this scary mean to you? She didn't know it was an Egyptian rebirth symbol. She never would have come out with that. And I believe that she got all excited because her dream came true. That in her dream, she has an experience of a scary, which is a particular color, not the beetle, it's the color that happened to be the color of the beetle. But what's important is that some man hands it to her. So when, when uh, Jung feels the tap behind the window as she's reiterating this dream, knows that it's a scarab beetle, picks it up, goes over to her, touches her, which is not usually what the therapists do with their patients, opens her hand, gives it to her, and says, here's your scarab. She has a uh, psychological orgasm. And I think that she was in love with Jung, and her therapist comes over, gives her a gift, and touches her, and she had a positive transference which must have flooded her and uh, caused an enormous breakthrough in her uh, repressed sexuality. That's what I think happened. However, whether that happened or not, doesn't matter. What he did with it was it thrilled him because he goes on to take all this stuff very seriously and spends the rest of his life um, delving deeper and deeper into coming up with... Um, uh, uh, um, concepts which become the basis of his um, adjunctive therapy to Freud and, and comes up with, a, I forget it, the name of it, analytic, um, whatever the name of his own brand of psychoanalysis. And what I think happened in the synchronicity, the meaning to him was that he was able for the first time to take all of these basic concepts that he had, including his interest in synchronicity, take it with the utmost seriousness, identify with it, and had it work with the patient, and was able to validate his own theory. And if you look at the synchronicities that he talks about, each one does exactly the same thing. He's, he's taking additional material, he synthesizes it, and believes it. And it'll make an ongoing evolution of his own consciousness. 
And this is what I think people do. Huh. So, from, so, so from your vantage point, let me take a guess. So you've said enough about yourself to feel that there's been a parallel between your fundamental experience and mine. So you start out with a identity quest of wanting to make meaningful connections and answer these seemingly impossible problems. All right, so you start your own quest and you have your own adventure and your own trip. What seems to be going on now is with this blog, obviously you're taking the subject very seriously. You're finding that many others are seriously involved in it, like me. And you get, you know, like the um, birds of a feather. Sure. And, and with it, each time that I call you, you talk, you talk to somebody who verifies and so forth. If I'm right, you should be feeling increasingly more whole, more purposeful, more directed, take yourself more seriously, be more confident that you are on a trail that at least fits you. And it reminds me of Yates in his autobiography who says, and I use this a lot because it makes sense to me, he said when he was, uh, that it took him many, I'm paraphrasing, it took him many years to get in touch with his central experience of feelings, thinking, and so forth, and many more to take his experience as valid for himself. People who are synchronistically prone, like you and me, I think are stuck between A and B. So you know what you're doing, you can take it very seriously and pursue it, but it's another, it's another step to take what you are doing as valid for yourself. Yeah, absolutely, and I feel like I'm, I'm very much struggling with, with my own oh, identity. It seems like this new identity has emerged recently where, where I, like if five years ago, six years ago, if someone had told me that I would be pursuing this t sort of thing, I would have laughed in their face. I would never would have imagined I would be doing um, this sort of, and I call it research, and people ask me like, well, what are you researching? And then I, I the only th way I can answer truthfully is I, I say, well, I guess I'm researching myself. People who are synchronistically prone, and I have a very small sample of me and my patients, and of course, one would anticipate that, well, of course, I, I, it follows that I am going to be saying what I'm saying, but they are all very much searching for their identities. Period. Yeah. It's very interesting, and I, um, I watched a documentary last night and it and it was a, it was an interesting documentary it was a, it was about uh oh some gay activists who were who created this documentary about closeted gay politicians mm -hmm. and how oftentimes their the closeted gay politician will be purposefully almost um as far as uh you know same sex marriage rights and uh AIDS research and things that would be very very uh, important to the to the gay community which is 10% of the planet you know they are they are openly hostile to those programs, and it was very interesting because I found that that the um, you know Barney Frank from from uh, mm -hmm. Massachusetts mm -hmm. spoke openly about you know what was involved in because his first couple of years as a politician he was um, closeted, and then mm -hmm. he realized like this isn't working, and he just came out, and mm -hmm. he said it was in essence it was it hasn't been a problem, you know to thine own self be true, uh, you know these people are repressing the 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 very truth of your own existence yeah, is going to create they problems. They can't be them. And if you do that, you're locked in a civil war where you can't expose it and you can't deny it. And out of that tension 
becomes an enormous struggle for identity, which you can't face up to. So it's, it's filled with contradictions. Now, and I'll say, like, so here, I have a story which I've spoken about and I've written about and I've drawn pictures of, uh, and, and it's a very strange memory, but it's a memory of me waking up in my bedroom. Uh, this would have been 1992, the winter of 92, 93. Mm-hmm. So it would probably have been January of 93. And mm-hmm. uh, I was lying in bed. I sat up in bed because there was a really bright light shining in mm-hmm. my bedroom window. And my first impression was that there was a car in the driveway. The way the bedroom was pointed, it was sort of pointed to where the driveway was. It was late at night. I was the only one in the house. It didn't make any sense. So I sat up and looked outside in the yard. And in the yard, right outside my window, close, like close enough to be bizarre, were five skinny, gray, uh, big-headed aliens with the, with the scary, big, black eyes. How, how old were you in 92? 31. Okay. I would have been 31 at the time. No, I would excuse me, I would have been 30. So Bud Hopkins was online. Uh, you, you, know, you know what he would do with this. With this. Oh, what? I've told him about this. What would he do? Well, he would uh, say, yeah, we got to hypnotize you. Well, he did try to hypnotize me. So, so, and I was very, well, very willingly went to, to get hypnotized by him. Um, so that the, um, outside the window, the light itself was, was smaller than, than you would think. And, mm-hmm. you know, that if. Flash, flashlight? No, more about the size of a. Lantern? No, like a, uh dishwasher or washing machine or something like that it, oh, okay, been, yeah. it felt like it was small and this is all yeah. i mean obviously memories are foggy and i and i and i yeah. want to be careful not to trust you know but it's felt significantly yeah. smaller it did not look like a big flying saucer let me put it that way but certainly um, very impressive and uh so i i looked and this this whole thing maybe lasted 20 seconds or less no very like a snapshot so so i'm looking out the window i'm see these five characters very scary. I have no emotion at all. Mm-hmm. And then I, I literally sense this voice in my head or very clearly sense this command, whether it was internally in my own voice or whether it was external, I have no idea. But I sense this command and it basically was, now it's time to lay down and, sh- and, and shut down. Wow. And so I put my head in the pillow and, and instantly went back to sleep. Where if this was, um, this is a scary thing. I should have screamed and you know and, and locked the doors and grabbed a baseball bat and, uh, but I didn't. I put my head on the pillow and went right back to sleep. Wow, what an experience! So so I had that experience under my belt. It was very dreamlike, yeah, uh, in the sense that it didn't. It it felt like it was in a realm that didn't match, uh, normal waking existence. It felt like it was yeah. a. So I feel like I can dismiss it as a dream, given yeah. the fact that it had this quality to it that was dreamlike. But at the same time, um, it's created a very uh, strong tension in my life that uh, that this event, and then I have several others that that are. If yeah, Bud Hopkins really, was um, if Bud Hopkins really was listening, and he would he would you know he would make a an assumption which I simply cannot make. I have had. Two similar kinds of things, which I cannot account for, but feel very vivid to me. One was in that seance that I told you about, where 
I'm in a room with 10 other people, and Agatha, the medium, says to me, say what comes to mind, and after I was facetious and said, nothing comes to mind, it's all dark, she says, now just wait and ask, just see what happens. So I relaxed, and in my mind's eye was an ovular, an oval that was yellowish, and in the middle of the oval was a grandmotherly face, and she says, how do you know it's a grandmother? And I said, because she has granny glasses, and she said, who the granny glasses belong to? And because I was turned on to the uh, girl next to me and was trying to come on, I said, well, it obviously belongs to Diane to my right. And Diane says, yeah, my, those are my grandma's gra- granny glasses. I have them prominently displayed on my mantle. And I've never seen anything quite like that kind of vision, except for one other time when my... Just preceding the birth, was it preceding? I think it was preceding the birth of my first child. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I woke up with a start. I felt like I woke up. And at the end of my bed was a, look like a very little child, probably about one and a half, sitting there, staring and with a smile. And I rubbed my eyes as if, is this real? And if so, who is this child? I have no child. What, what, what is this all about? And it, was, it really had the feeling of, like, I guess a real hallucination. Or I guess hallucinations feel real. Whatever it was, those are the two major kinds of things like you had that I would say are completely unexplainable and felt very real. And um, and what do you make of that? I mean, were those self-generated? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, that's a good I answer. I like it, that answer. Uh, I make of it that uh, uh, my own attempts at fitting all this stuff into some kind of coherent uh, logical thing uh, leaves off at this point, and I have to conclude at the moment, very interesting. I don't know what to make of it. Huh. This is this is so. I went through an experience. Uh, this is going back a while ago, where there was a death of an acquaintance, and but I was very much close by when it happened. It was an accident, and uh, there was a bunch of other people involved, and it was very distressing. And I and I went through um, a bunch of months where I did some very serious soul searching. I wanted answers. I wanted some, you know, cosmic finality. I wanted some perfect answer and I never got it. What the interesting thing was is that as I was searching, I'm going to use a metaphor here. Uh, you, how, what, what age now? I would have been 33 and the person who died, it was a woman and she was 16. Okay. So, uh, and um, you, how, you, how old are you now? I'm 47. Okay, go ahead. So, By the way, I, I, I find that the 30s are extremely important, particularly to guys, in terms of this identity quest. For some reason or other, that seems to correlate. That's it's so interesting, and that was this, those were the seven years that I was on Prozac. It was my thirties from very from thirty one to thirty eight. So yeah, I find that very crucial in terms of identity questing, particularly for guys. Yeah. So some the people uh, call the thirty third year the Jesus Christ year. I'm not going that far, but that it is in the literature. Huh. 
that's interesting. So, so this is my 33rd year, and um, the uh, so in this act of searching, I felt like I came up. I searched hard. I was real. I mean, I did. I read the Bible. I, I, you know, looked into all kinds of avenues. I talked to so many people. I, I talked to other people who had had similar life experiences. I made a point of of uh, of talking to folks who had had um, life experiences where they'd had experienced. Um, uh, you know the tragedy of the same type that I had, uh, which was a which was an, which was a, a fatality that occurred in a, a mountain environment. So, um, right. uh, and the act of doing that, I felt like I never had it. I never got the answer I wanted. So I'll use a metaphor where I was I was looking at my right hand and I wanted an answer, and I didn't have an answer in my right hand. But what had happened is the act of searching so intently, it felt like without even knowing it, without even realizing it, that I had actually, my left hand was filled with life skills, was filled with, with deep life experiences um, that, uh, that I worked hard to achieve in, in that time of trying to process this. I don't understand what you mean by left hand. Well, I'm just using right hand. I wanted, I wanted to hold the answer in my hand. Oh, you, didn't, you had nothing in the right hand, but you had a lot in the left. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So, so, and that was just, and and that way, was, you, that was a valuable, that in terms of right brain, left brain, that's interesting. No, well, maybe it was the right brain, left brain. It was funny. Um, but the, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted an answer and, and I didn't get it. But at the same time, I, I ended up with, uh, with, uh, some powerful life experiences and life insights. What did you, what do you do with that? What did I, if what that, did I do with that? You know what I did with that? I was very, um, when it when there was other people, I live in a small mountain town, and 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 uh, you know people do these bold uh, climbing and adventure sports and things. And when folks had when there was a fatality, one one of the things I did do is I sought out the person, the survivor, and uh, and made sure to make contact with them. And I felt like I was very good, uh, a very good resource. See, from my vantage point, your intensity in looking for your answers. You got a partial answer, which is a message from your creative unconscious that was directly out of the um, feelings that you had with this person who died and that you made out of a lousy set of circumstances. You gave yourself a very creative um, piece of your journey, which if you add it all up, becomes the purpose of your lifetime, which you manufacture as you make these choices. Okay. But that's what you did with it. So in other words, in this view, you went, you took another step up your mountain, and if the, if the, whole, if the whole climb is, what's my purpose, you gave yourself a partial answer, it came out of the intensity of your search for the purpose, but it was only, you know, it it it, it gave you a connection for that leg of the journey. Mm-hmm. You don't get the whole answer you get, because you haven't lived your whole life. You get you get it incrementally. You carve out purpose as you move through. It was one thing for me to have a burning interest in synchronicities. It was another thing to take them seriously. It's another thing to start recording a 37-year journal. It's another thing to read the literature. 
It's another thing to take the literature and apply it to my experiences, and so on and so forth, up to the point where I massed an enormous amount of material, but I couldn't stick it into a book. First of all, I didn't have the confidence. Secondly, I was afraid to show it, a number of things. I had to resolve that issue, um, put it into uh, some kind of an organized form, and then have enough uh, balls to be able to send out a, um, what do you call it, a proposal, which my wife said, look, you know, you're not getting any mileage on this uh, uh, memoir of yours in the drug addiction thing. Why don't you do, why don't you write out a proposal for the synchronicity? I knocked it out. I sent it out. I called one person uh, in, as a, who was an editor. She said, gee, we can't do it because we went out of business, but I have a friend who I think would be really interested in this. The friend was an editor at, at uh, Aronson, my publisher. She calls me the next day, and she says, I think you got a really great thing here. You're going to make an important contribution to the field. This was in April of last year. By June, I had a signed contract. The book came out six months later. I don't know anybody who does that. Wow, that's fascinating. I actually have a story similar to that about there was a documentary that I, that I had an idea of doing and um, about the abduction phenomena. The documentary sort of... Uh, fell apart but the but the actual writing up the proposal um was almost exactly like like what you just described it sort of came in this flurry i did it late at night i sent it out to one person bing, uh, bang, boom. and and uh and he called me back the, and said okay let's like, do it good, good good timing yeah but i'm inclined to think that if you look at it from your end of it it takes all of those incremental steps to go from idea to execution, and then if the timing is right, that part's easy. It's getting you to be able to take your stuff seriously, get it out there. But the point I'm trying to make is it's a series of sequential steps. It's not so simple. It's easy to say, I got this great idea. Yeah, well, go do it. Yeah, and identity issues that I'm dealing with right now are, you know, what do I, and I, and I hate to use the word label, but I'm just, I'm at a loss to like, to how do I, what's my identity? What's my label? What am I, am I a UFO abductee? I have no direct memory or knowledge that would, that would say as much. So I cannot. Oh, that's a great, oh, that's, oh, what a wonderful idea though you got. You know, you don't have to, uh, if I may, you don't have to, uh, I, you know what comes to mind? Uh, you know the name of that play by Pirandello, Six Characters in Search of an Author? Mm, no. It's a great title. Why don't you consider something like that? That you you don't you're you're uh, perpetually questing for the right title, which oh, which is elusive because your experience is out of the box. You have no there is no way of knowing because it's uh, seemingly uh, one of a kind. And um, the only thing that I can that I can say with a surety is that something is going on, and I can't go much beyond that. Um, that's too general. There's always something going on. Yeah, well, <laughs> something, or let's say something you're, in italic I know letters. I but you've got you you to particularize that something, or it's too general. It's like spirituality. It's a nice term, but nobody knows what it means. Yeah. Um, I use the term paranormal sometimes, um, as opposed to, it's very interesting, because the, the uh, 
people will say, you know, like, oh, well, what are you dealing with? And I'll say, well, lately, the way this very odd phenomena is manifesting, it's not manifesting as UFOs in the sky because I haven't seen anything like that uh, since I was 12 years old. And it's not manifesting as uh, like abduction experiences because I don't have any memories at all of those, though I certainly am fascinated by them. And I have life events that would would indicate that that, that may have occurred. So you're really, you were really impacted by that experience. That, that apparently was life-defining. The event of seeing that stuff out my window? Yeah. The, the, you know, yeah, what was actually had more life-defining. That had life enormous defining. impact on you. You know, what was more life-defining was, was an event that took place in 1974 where I had two hours of missing time um, in my hometown. Um, and, you, gotta uh, write, you, got, you, you must write this stuff down. Oh, it's all great, on the blog. Oh, it's very much this, this is down? It's all on the blog, yeah, with pictures and maps and drawings and and uh, and my editorializing and my, you know, sort of being pragmatic. Have you, got, and, you got an outline for a book? You know, I don't know if there's a book in this. I think that it's Oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. No, write it. Write the book. You, know, you, have, you, have a unique, you have a very good approach. With the, you're, you're like me. You're, skept, you're not exactly skeptical. You're hardly a true believer. Because you know what to believe in, but you tell you're very objective and it's entertaining, it's interesting, and people are really into this. I, and you don't have to have answers; you can be questing. You're you're exploring a foreign location. You're discovering America. I don't know. Yeah. yeah just tell tell your story. Well, I've been doing that on you the blog. The blog has been serving that purpose, and, and all this stuff is archived in the blog. And maybe someday there will be a. Um, uh, you know, some sort of book thing, but at present, I don't feel any pull to do that. So, um, the... what are you preoccupied with? What's your what's your con- what's your major concern these days? <sighs> you know, one of them is just straight social stigma. Just the fact that, like, the, I'm coming out, I'm being open with this stuff. Um, I just yeah, feel that's like... where I am. We, we we dovetail. We get along well since I think we're in a similar place like that. Yeah, social stigma. I've never been so social in my life. What I did today is about the first time I've done that. By choice, in about fifty years, I, I did something really remarkable today for me, and I, I really pushed myself, and it was very good. I'm glad I went. Well, I I have to say that I have been pushing myself lately, and I'm very proud of that. And what's happening is like one half of my life is is uh, well, not half. A, a part of my life is fading away, and and this other part is emerging. Well, then you and I are feeling similarly. I think we are both in a major transition between what we were and what we're not, or going into uh, exploring new possibilities. Now, of course, everybody's in transition, but uh, but some people can be in in, in, a, in a capital T transition. Yeah. It sounds like we are. Yeah, it's very. It's just so interesting. So, um, so the, one of the things that's, that's stressing me out is the social stigma. One of the things that's stressing me out is the fact that. Um, I am, I mean, it's potentially scary, right? Something is scary at the end of this hallway. If it's, if it is what the, the, there's like these, if the implications are that there's some sort of uh, UFO event has taken place in my life or multiple times, I have no memory of them except for that fleeting memory of the, uh, of the uh, figures in the lawn. And I have some other odd events. Um, uh, If I may, I had one other when you just mentioned that, I have one more association. I was with my ex-wife, and we went to England, and we went to where the Druids supposed to be, wherever that was, Glastonbury. Uh-huh. And we went to a uh, place to stay overnight, and a woman 
looked absolutely surrealistic. And a woman comes out, older lady, and she had a cane, and she looked very severe, but she was a very nice lady. And she took us to the end room of a hallway, and she said, it, this is inter- it's an interesting room because it looks out onto the ruins where the Druids were, and apparently it was a time of year where each year they would have had some kind of um, religious celebration or something like that. And I knew a little bit about this stuff, not very much, but there was something in the atmosphere that when she closed the door and my wife and I were left, now maybe it was a feeling I had with my ex-wife because we weren't getting along too well, but whatever it was, we both felt in the atmosphere the most odd, uncanny, spooky. It was weird. I will never forget that feeling. And it was like maybe because of the druids and the occult and the magic and whatever it was, and I think the moon was out, so the atmosphere was really a peculiar kind of thing. It was as if we were there with the druids, whatever that meant. And what, but you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it, it was the atmosphere that you described is the atmosphere that I felt, that we felt, and mm-hmm. I felt very frightened. It's it's that kind of uncanny. It's here, but it's not here. It's real. It's unreal. It's surrealistic. Surreal. And if you want. Any kind of explanation, try this from a psychodynamic point of view, because I've had a number of patients who have had these kind of experiences that come up. This could be, if it were a naturalistic explanation, and I don't pretend, I don't know what happened, so who knows. But often when there are these kinds of odd surrealistic moments, they sometimes tend to get tricked. Whatever there was, let's say the five figures, the five kids walking around in there, whatever, there was something going on, some stimulus that you saw accurately or distortedly as whatever you saw. You saw something. That whatever it is that you see triggers off what is often a traumatic memory from one's past and there is a fusion or a confusion between the here and now and the there and then in which there is a reliving of some past trauma that is projected onto the present scene. It looks real, but it's a combination of reality and imagination that, that, takes, that takes a third form of something clearly going on that is very impactful and very impressive, but not otherworldly. It's, it, it is that if you could analyze it, if this is true, it would be very worldly, but feeling as if it's alien. It's one naturalistic explanation. What's the truth? I don't know. But that's one possibility. So here, let me, so as far as like proceeding down this path and just taking these synchronicities, I, I told you a story one time where um, we, when we first spoke, I met a woman at a UFO conference. Her name was Dina Blatt, and she wrote a book, and she was a, Oh, she's an elderly woman, and she uh, she told she talked about synchronicities as being a thread, and she said mm-hmm. if you if you 
encounter a synchronicity that is a thread and you need to pull on it and if you don't pull on that thread that's a disservice to the synchronicity and yeah, she that, was that, very that small. I, I, I understand that. yeah she was very uh animated and she actually did the little mm -hmm. pantomime of pulling this thread towards her mm -hmm. and she said at the end of that thread is going to be another synchronicity and mm -hmm. at the end of these synchronicities is your destiny Mm -hmm. And I thought it was so impactful having her tell me that, and she was very sweet. And, yeah, and we got a little truth to that. I can, I can appreciate that. Yeah. So um, here's what I'm uh, planning to do. Uh, a few days from now, I'm going to go get in my car, and I live in Idaho, and I'm going to drive south to Salt Lake City. I'm going to pick Natasha up, who I spoke about early, mm -hmm. earlier at the Salt Lake City Airport. She's coming to America for three weeks to spend with me, spend mm -hmm. together with and we'll go to Moab, where I've had a lot of synchronicities. Where is that? It's a town uh, in southern Utah. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, in the heart of the like the desert canyon country. With it's near the Grand great. Canyon, and I've it's near. Out there. I'd love to come out. Oh, there. it's just a spectacular spot. Yeah, and there's a, there's great. wonderful camping out there, and we're planning to go camping. And I have to be like we've talked about it, and this I'll have to be honest. Our she's also has um, experiences that would could possibly quantify as contact experiences. Great. So you'll have a ball. And uh, we are, I don't know what the right term, I think we're, we're, we're committed at a deep level to having some sort of experience. We are purposely going to go out into the desert so, so and, and meditate Great. and try to bring in... Great. Right. This this paranormal UFO psychodynamic whatever it is this experience. Well, I, would love, and, I would love to hear your uh, experience. Yeah, and I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe nothing's oh, going to happen except we take pretty pictures. Research. But great piece of research. Nothing yeah. else. Hope you have good weather. Sounds like you have a hell of a lot of fun. Oh yeah, this is a beautiful time of the year. It's before the heat of the the, the, the heat of the summer, and uh, um, so yeah. You like you like this girl? Uh, very much so. Very much so. So here I'll tell you another story about her, and I, and I may have to edit some of this out, is depending on how personal it sure. gets. But um, I told you about the fact that we we met at this UFO conference two years ago. Right. I right. I we we drive to the airport, and I took her to the airport to say goodbye to her. It was very emotional. This the Las Vegas airport is kind of Las Vegas is a crazy place. It just we're both vegetarians, and to try to get something to eat in Las Vegas mm -hmm. is awful. Mm -hmm. So we we're driving, and I see there's a what's called a Whole Foods, which is a grocery store, and I know it has a has a uh, like a salad bar and a deli counter that's very uh, you know groovy for vegetarians. So mm -hmm. I, I on the on the or the freeway there, I turn around, I, I I pull in. So I pull into the spot and I pull into the parking spot. She gets out and we're gonna I'm gonna be saying gonna be saying goodbye to her in mm -hmm. a, like an hour. Mm -hmm. So uh, she gets out on her passenger side and I get out on the driver's side. And when I stand and look at her. She's holding a balloon. Mm -hmm. And I look at her and she's very confused. She has this odd expression. And I walk around to her side of the door just to make sure it's closed. And she hands me the balloon. Mm -hmm. And it's a heart-shaped balloon that says, I love you. Mm -hmm. And I set it in the car. I don't, so we don't say anything about it. Uh, we, we eat lunch. I take her to the airport. I say goodbye to her. Um, it's very touching. Um, we The very first phone call we make uh, over Skype, I I say, listen, Natasha, I have to ask, where did you get that balloon? Mm -hmm. And she says, I don't know. 
I think it just appeared in my hand. I think it might have been blowing in the wind, and I just grabbed it when I stepped out of the car. Um, I have that balloon right now. It's in my closet, in my sock drawer, like in a nice soft spot. So it is that balloon has been, it's still, it's it's still inflated. It's been two years. Great story. So, um, yeah, so that, that was, uh, that's very, that's very lovely. Yeah. Where where, where does she live? She lives in Germany, in central Germany. By the way, have you ever wanted to write fiction? No. You'd be a good fiction writer. You know, it's interesting. What I have wanted to do is do, um, like a graphic novel, a, uh, uh, mm. Just my illustration skills. Oh, you got to do it. You must do that. And now, you got great, you got great material, so you can certainly take what you're talking about and uh, have a ball. Yeah, yeah, and I believe I've been thinking about it. Hey, here's something. There's a movement right now. There's a fellow named Jake Kotze, and he's a uh, oh, I don't know what you'd call him. Like a, a he's must be in his twenties, and he's he he refers to himself as a uh, as a synchromistic. And and I yeah, think this is being fueled yeah. by the internet, where the they they are making. Um, there's another there's another fellow named Steve Wilner who's doing very similar work, and this stuff is funny and playful, and they are finding coincidences in movies and. Uh, oh, this stuff! It, I, this stuff is exploding. Yeah, I'm finally in the mainstream. There's no question in my mind. This, this is big time. And I and I have to say that part of this now here here's the thing now now it's 2010 as we have this conversation, right? Um, would the ability for people to openly ponder in a public forum their own synchronicities been? Oh, it would have been possible, obviously, but would have have it has reached a level of ease with the advent of this communication tool, the the, the internet. Oh, I don't doubt it. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has accelerated a lot of things, certainly this. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the other things that's accelerated is, um, for good or for bad, you know, it gets a little nutty sometimes. Right. But um, uh, there are UFO abductees. There's a woman named Miriam Delicato, Mm -hmm. and she she was abducted by beautiful, blonde, uh, perfect sort of godlike aliens uh, in 1988 on a highway in Canada. Mm-hmm. She was taken aboard a UFO. Everyone in the car that she was with turned just kind of switched off and turned into, you know, mm-hmm. sort of blank faced zombies. Mm-hmm. She was taken on board this craft, spent several hours uh, in the presence of these, the way she describes them, these like divine beings. Mm-hmm. And they said, they imparted her with all kinds of knowledge. And they said, there is going to be a day when we're going to ask you to come forward. Mm-hmm. And from 1988 um, onward, she was silent. She was shared some of the stuff with her friends and she did mm-hmm. some of her own, um, you know, she was on her own personal journey. But mm-hmm. um, in 2007, they reemerged into her life and they said, now is time to come forward with, mm-hmm. with what you know. And she wrote a book. What was the name of the book? Her name of her book is Blue Star. And uh, and Blue Star is a is a Hopi prophecy. When the Blue Star reappears, there'll be a, like, and this is all culminating and blending in with 2012 uh, cool. memes and and uh, so. Uh, and I asked her in conversation in a, in a dialogue very much like this. Um, 
would that have been possible? It seems that so interesting mm. that they, these mm. angelic beings, asked you to come forward at the very That's same right. time yeah. in at the only point in human history mm. when coming forward could have been extremely uh, rapid and impactful. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Because of the advent of the Internet. Yeah, very interesting. What you say? She was she was sort of struck by the by the 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 uh, uh, you know the sort of logic of that that um, that you know all these things are happening you know these people are coming forward and there's this uh, whatever like this, right, so this... let me ask you let's assume that in your terms there is something happening and that it is more than the self and it is out there and it's real. What do you do with that? What are the implications of that for you? <sighs> okay, the implications for me are that, that there's a spiritual element to this, which is very reassuring. I feel very blessed. I've talked to a lot of people who've had scary, scary experiences. I have had what no... What do you mean, when you use the term spiritual in this connection, you mean what? As close as you can get to it. Tough word. Uh, uh, the fact that um, there's something going on behind the curtain, behind the veil, that mm. is interesting, that is multi-layered, that is profound, that is, uh, can be traced back in mythical realms. Um, you know, it, something... Well, try this. Is it benign spirituality? Is it benign? Or it could be quite um, malevolent? Or it could be an extension of what we have here, which is a mixed bag. Uh, you know, I can't answer whether it's benign or malevolent. Um, from my direct experience, um, it seems to be quite playful. Hmm. Okay. And and uh, and um, I know, and I've talked okay. to people who have very you know very frightening stories uh, that that uh, that are, and I don't know why for some reason in me. Personally, it's manifesting as something playful. Uh, well, you would like to think, theologically, I would like to think that if they, if this is real and they have a mode of uh, contact that they can get here, let's say there's spaceships and all that, then it, it has to be, if, if, if consciousness is universal, then it has to be a highly developed and refined consciousness. And if so, if there is a universal principle, then wouldn't you think they would have an elevated sense of humor? And if so, then it would fit your thing. I would think that they would not be. They would not be malevolent. They would be very advanced. They would be uh, decent, ethical people. I'd like to believe that. Now, of course, there are all sorts of stories. I heard them the other night with uh, David Jacobs, who uh, believes that there are... Uh, uh, a lot of rat bastards, and they're just—they've uh, exhausted. You know, you know the stories. They've oh gosh, yes. And I was gonna—I was gonna—he's a perfect example of someone with 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 uh, with coming to conclusions that are very dark. He's uh, very pessimistic, and uh, whatever you you get the point. But I would logically, I would like to believe that if they're they're superior beings, that they would be superior in ways that I would think would be. Uh, a benefit to everybody, or if not, what a bummer! <laughs> that, that would be really, really a 
Yeah, from my vantage point. Yeah, what a bummer is a perfect way. Yeah, like so. God, so I don't know what's happening. I don't know. I, right. I don't. I don't want to try to predict the future and what's happening and what's. But but there's yeah. a so. F- the the spiritual element would be that that there is something. The act of looking into this and the act of looking so hard has opened me up to to a lot of other. Uh, you know, there's books on my bookshelves that I would not have purchased, and mm-hmm. um, had I have not, you know, gone down. Well, if nothing else, this stuff really, really indeed. And see, I think that that's. I think there's a trend towards this, and I think it's a very good idea. I think that people have gotten here. Try this as a concept. I loved this. Concept. My whole an- analysis, but when I look back on it, in terms of an identity quest, revolved around. One major premise, and the one major premise is who is your own final authority, and it's either ultimately yourself or a projection that you give to God, spirit, uh, the president, your father, something. You project out final authority, something else, and then you figure out what they want from you, and you do it or you're in rebellion against it. And my belief is, ultimately, everybody is stuck with their own final authority. Whether you recognize it or not, everything obviously needs to revolve around your personal experience. I don't mean solipsistic, and I don't mean selfishness. I mean, you've got to bring yourself. Yourself is always central in whatever you say. And that whatever you do, you process it, and you lend your own particular stamp in terms of what you, the meaning it has for you. So... From my vantage point, what's what's critical, and why it doesn't really interest me as to whether or not there would be real beings out there and so forth, of which it seems quite plausible to me, why not? But if it were, I'm not all that impressed with it, because to me, everybody is alien, and you either make a good connection, or you make no connection, or you don't give a shit. If two dogs sniffing. So if there's beings, I would like to hope that they would be benign and interesting, and I would like to feel, you know, trustworthy. And if they're not, I bet I would guess I would be frightened when I get a mafia member who is just threatening me with extinction. So I don't, I don't care. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me. It's like the whole issue of life and death. I don't care what. I, I, I'm not. I can't get. I can't get involved with issues of, of what happens. What happens, happens. If there's consciousness, and there really is no death. Things just go on, and presumably you like what you do or you don't, and hopefully you can dissent or you can't, and then, you know, whatever. And if there's nothing, fine, then who cares? I won't know about it. <laughs> so it, it's more important to be where I am and to deal with the ongoing issue of what the hell's happening and what do I make of it. That's all that concerns me at the moment. Oh, you know, this wrestling with these experiences has been very... Um... But, that, but, but if I had the kind of experience that you're having, I w- that is happening to me. That would be a very important kind of thing, and I would most certainly be... Uh, if I had... If, if that was as real as it obviously is to you, I would be preoccupied with that. Now, it happens not to be, because I haven't had that experience. But I could see where you certainly be. Why not? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many, look, uh, everything that happens is not of equal weight. There are some things that are obviously more impactful than others. That would be very impressive to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, uh, 
oh, I just could go on and on and on. I should I could tell you story after story after story that are very, very, very curious and 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 leave me wondering. And I think now here's this is you know how when you read a detective novel, right? Okay. Oftentimes at the end of the novel, it's just like you know. And then I figured out who did it, and it's like it's almost it up, a letdown, right? Right. But they're in the middle of a de- good detective novel. It's like magic. It's like it's you know there's a oh, search. You know, it's it takes a little while to get rolling. That's you know. how I felt about doing my book because I oscillate between wanting, I really wanted to believe there was divine, the world spiritualized, and that and that and that there are miracles, and you can be rescued and saved, and good communication and all that, versus a a, a, a militant skepticism. And outright scoffing and figuring like, oh, cut the crap, you know, and, and, and really being, in a way, half Jung and half Freud, or half Plato and half Aristotle. And I think a lot of people feel this way. I don't think, it's, I don't think I'm unique. And I think it's part of what's going on. And it gets back to the issue of who's the final authority. And, that, and that to the degree to which you can't really answer that or you split, then I think there's this ha- you, it's sort of half and half, where you're sort of on an eternal cosmic fence. And then the issue is, if you're going to take a position, then you got to go one or the other. Yeah, the the uh, the metaphor of the of the of the detective novel is, in a way, this is really. I mean, it's challenging, obviously, but as like a, as like a life adventure, it's really fun. What well, is? And and I and I want to and I and I almost don't want it to like you know I'm wondering what you know, like where this next step is going to be, but at present the 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 mystery is so seductive. Here, try the following. In the beginning of my book, I, I posed the final, uh, the final, I posed the, the um, this, this challenge. Imagine you are attending a, an incredible one-trick magic show. And before the magician does the trick, he says, I'm going to perform this trick. And I predict every one of you is going to be dappled. And uh, he says, okay, here's the trick. And and indeed, everybody's dazzled. After they're dazzled, he then says, now I'm going to ask you each a question. I'm going to present two alternatives. You've got to take one or the other. And the two alternatives are... You've, 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 you've seen the trick, and you're dazzled. If you want, I will continue to perform the same trick, and I, and I predict you will be equally as dazzled. Or I can show you how the trick is done. Good choice. Very, that's, that's my quandary in a way, where I'm like, I'm, I'm, the, the act of being dazzled is like seductive. Dazzled, which is one thing, so that in a way you'll be questing for the answer, which goes back maybe to your um, intense, uh, intense um, experience, where you wanted to know the answer, of which I have no doubt. However, psychodynamically, it's conceivable that you both wanted to know the answer, and you didn't want to know the answer. Sure. Very so much conceivably that, that because I... Because the dazzlement, it's nice to be dazzled. So if you know the trick, uh, you're, you're, you're going to lose your dazzle. But from my vantage point, you gain something 
greater, which is the mystery of the creative process. By, by knowing the trick. By knowing how the trick is done. So my craft for the last 54 years is to find out if I can find a naturalistic explanation to explain what otherwise would seem to be an unearthly, unorthodox uh, spiritual uh, divinity. The, the synchronicities. Right. So and I feel... So I feel as if I did lose a certain dazzlement, but I got more of an appreciation from my vantage point as to the, the power of the idiosyncratic creative process. Wow, that's great. Isn't that interesting? Hey, um, we've been on the phone for two hours. Jesus, that went fast. It was amazing, huh? When you have it, we. You have a fun time flood. Yeah, and I and I feel like I've I've got I had a handful of questions that I had written down. I thought this went great. Um, Yeah, it was good. This is fun. Yeah, we're uh, on the same wavelength. It's very nice. I feel like I've done. uh, This is one of those past life experiences. You know, if I were that way, I would say. uh, So, what do we do in the in the uh, 19th century as we were discussing philosophy? Uh, This is great. I feel like I've known you all my life. This is a very nice feeling. Oh, this is great. And you lived right around the corner from me when I lived in on 10th Street and Broadway. Oh, isn't that funny? Yes. Isn't that funny? Where were we? 10th and Broadway? I was at the NYU dormitory. I was a student, and I was in the Brittany dormitory. Oh, isn't that wild? Yeah, and then I... And uh, I have a number of students from uh, there. It's very interesting that it, sometimes it takes someone from the outside to... to um, often not say much at all, except like, huh, you know, to sort of point out what is staring you right in the face, which is Michael, sometimes impossible. I have... I feel blessed that in my searching for a adequate vocation, which was real problematical until I was about 37 when I declared myself a psychologist. So I was always on this road. But the more I do my professional thing, the more I am, I feel blessed that I have knowledge and, and experience in a process of understanding which I feel is very much misunderstood what all that power is. I don't think anybody really gets it. But boy, this idea of having an external force that can validate, mirror back, and in so doing, if the mirroring is accurate, it has, as you know, it has enormous power. Absolutely enormous. I love this. I absolutely love this. Yeah, just amazing. I had uh, uh... I'll tell you one little short thing here. I had an experience where I um one of the things I do, which is which works for me, I find it very I will go out into the mountains. I live right near Grand Teton National Park and I'll go oh, out into the mountains. You sound like you have a fantastic place. Yeah, well my place. little cabin is very tiny, but my the, my backyard is oh, beautiful. So what? Who cares? It's yeah. Great. So I uh, I um will sleep out under the stars and yeah. I've started to take a tiny little hand recorder about the size of a you know, cigarette lighter pretty much. Right. And uh I will record my uh, dreams if I have any. I find I have very profound dreams. Right. And one of the things I'll do is I'll ask the universe for help before I go to bed. I say, listen, I'm open and receptive to anything you want to give me. And dreams seem to work well. And um, oh, you'll, get, you'll get clues. See, I could be <clears> consulting in personal and 
but it doesn't matter. You, what, it, got, the it doesn't matter the name I get for it. The universe is a nice name, and I'm very comfortable with that yeah, name. Good. Yeah, I like, I like so, it. So I, um, this, is, uh, this is October. By the way, you can do this with any problem. If you make the problem specific, go to sleep and, and say, whatever forces there are, give me aid uh, to resolve the problem. And if you have a dream, look at the dream as a filter to give you clues to the answer to the problem. So here's what happened. I, I uh, lay down in this field, and I realized that this, I mean, this is grizzly bear country, so I realized I, I usually carry bear spray, and I totally forgot the bear spray. So I felt pretty vulnerable, and I've done a lot of camping, so I figured oh, I'll just kind of tuck myself into the bushes here a little bit. It's not a good idea to camp near a trail in bear country because the bears use the trails at night the same way we use the hikers. Would, use would, the they, would they eat you up? What, what, what would they do? Uh, they, that would not be out of the question that they could eat me up, yeah. Oh, so you could be really in trouble. Yeah, it would be the 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 bear, especially at night when the bears are predators. Oh, so, dude. um, so I, you know, it's like oh, the chances are very low, you know, low probability, high consequence. So I wasn't too worried. Um, so I lay down, go to sleep, tucked into the bushes, and then in the middle of the night, there's like something big walking around oh, me, and there it's walking around me. And I've spent a lot of time sleeping outside, so I've oh, seen a lot of like God. you know, I know what it means oh, to have no. like a you know, a squirrel or something nearby and it sounds yeah, huge, sure. but this was big. Um, oh, and then there's this grunting noise and then there's crashing through the trees and then oh, there's no. right near the water and it's splashing in the water. And there's this very strange noise that I've never heard before. It's this, mm. this weird grunting. And, mm. uh, and so, and I, in this, I do this form of camping, this extreme lightweight camping where you take every item you can take is as lightweight as you get. So instead of a true flashlight, I have what amounts to like a keychain light. So just uh, think about the dimmest little uh, pathetic light you'd imaginable. So I'm shining this light off into the trees. Uh-huh. And at first my heart is going boom, 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 boom. And then yeah. this crashing just goes on and on and on and it doesn't end. Oh. And um, there, the crashing is really close, and there's something standing right next to me. And I turn the light on, and it's two elk. It's a oh, male wow. elk and a female elk. And this is right oh, during the great. rut, which is in the mating season, which is in October. And the male elk is insane with, like, this primal passion. And he's oh, just wow. plodding around, grunting like a, like a you know, is, is brutal. Like a, like a hot elk. Yeah, just like the, <laughs> And then the, the cow is... Uh, you know, shunning his advances, but at the same time not shunning him so much. So they're just like in this primal love act, like wow. are all around me. Now the thing oh, that was that thing that was most on my mind, like in the weeks leading up to this, was mm-hmm. all kinds of like issues of like you know what is going on with my relationship with women and why is it so confusing uh-huh. and uh-huh. why am I like sort of I'm, I was so completely over romanticizing uh-huh. the the. Uh, you know some aspects of it, and then and then completely right. being bewildered by the by the uh, you know more primal aspects of it. Right. And uh, and so I said like oh you know I thought this was and I woke right. up the next morning I said well that was stupid I didn't get any lessons I asked the universe for advice, and then I had this therapist you know I told the therapist the story and she great. just yeah, laughed. Of yeah. So he, yeah, the manifestation right, of right my, in front of you in the in like the most vivid heart pounding way i literally stood up on my on my little sleeping pad in this dark cold night and screamed off into the darkness like leave me the fuck alone you know and it was just my inability to uh so it's hard to process those overwhelming feelings 
those overwhelming primal things that just seem so, sure. you know, I wanted sure. something breezy and romantic and, and this, this, you know, this primal grunting thing, which crashes through the woods and makes your heart pound was, uh, you know, was, was rearing its head instead. Now, if I'm right, there's the, you didn't call the thing, you didn't call the elks to you. They were there and they become externalized that's your issue, externalized, and what it may be in, in terms of treatment. What you, my experience is that in order to deal with, let's say that's an issue, the first issue in dealing with the issue is that you've got to accept the issue. You've got to face, you've got to face the, and then instead of running away from or being intimidated about, you've got to stare at, you've got to face up to it. So the first issue is to experience the, the um, intensity of it without running away, which, is so, which sounds like what you did. Without letting on, say again? Without running away. You have to face it and make it into a problem rather than being overwhelmed by it or denying it. You have to literally face the issue head on. Yeah. And, and it's there's nothing more. I mean, wait till you, like, see that in your flashlight beam, um, you know. Amazing, right, right in front. Now, I mean, they, they, it was close. Now, isn't this interesting? Because if you read that paper that I told you about, it's all about staring at the gaze, either malevolent or benign or some kind of combination of the two. It's all about that. That paper said just, yeah, and I plan on it. And in fact, I started it, and I got about halfway through it just before I dialed you. You tell me. You tell me. You, you tell me your reaction to that. I, I, I'll bet you it's going to be very powerful. It's it's a it's a very it's a very interesting um, combination of everything we're talking about, mm-hmm. and it and it admits of either possibility, either you're really projecting you into it, and or there's something really external out there. And or the combination of the two, so it takes into account all three possibilities. Now, here's—are you familiar with Leo Sprinkle? Never heard of him. Leo Sprinkle is a is a is a peer of of uh, Bud Hopkins. They do oh, not really? see eye to eye on a lot of things, uh, which Never is fine. I, mean, I don't think in, in any field any. I think the you know people doing research on plumbing probably don't see eye to eye on the same thing. But um, he is a. Uh, a wonderful gentleman uh, who taught psychology at the University of Wyoming, um, mm-hmm. and then just recently left and has been started his own practice, a family therapy practice. Anyway, he he's been doing um, research into the UFO abduction phenomena since the mid '60s, mm. and um, one of the first people to use uh, hypnotherapy. Uh, not the first, but one of the early early pioneers in the use of hypnotherapy, along with Bud. And um, his take on this is very spiritual. It's very uplifting. It's very, you know, more than benevolent. It's out and out, you know, like our space brothers. And, and it's, he's got a very nice, heartwarming view of it. And it's very sweet to hear him talk and to, you know, to hear him share his ideas. Uh, very much different than, than uh, David Jacobs. Uh, I will say that it's very hard-nosed, factual, and uh, doesn't like what he's saying. Well, I think that that um that uh, on many levels, uh, 
Leo Sprinkle is a is a very hard nosed factual researcher too. You know, he's doing his research mm-hmm. um, and collecting data and and. Uh, and isn't it interesting that uh, different people can uh, connect the dots entirely different? And I will also say that one of the things that happened once Leo started looking into this experience, I guess it would have been in the early 80s, after doing this sort of research for almost 20 years, um, he realized that he had had his own abduction experiences. Oh, isn't that interesting? And there's a handful of, of researchers who fall into that category. Who, oh, I, I wouldn't. That makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. There's a, there's a researcher in California named Barbara Lamb, and she's had her own set of abduction experiences. And her outlook is very, like we're dealing with these loving angels uh, at the other end of these experiences. And now what's happening are the people who are having the experience, are they somehow migrating to the Leo Sprinkles if they want on some deep level mm. to have confirmation of an angelic experience are they migrating to that type of researcher subconsciously consciously uh, i'm not sure how they actually arrive there um and then other folks who are dealing who have potentially frightening experiences and i believe these experiences are very real and i do not doubt that these experiences can be very terrifying um are they migrating to the Dave Jacobs in the research community? Well, clearly that gets them into the idea of you, of um, different kinds of... Con- I think the problem with consciousness is there's no one unitary consciousness. In my study, I have posited... I think I stole this from somebody, but it doesn't matter. I posited uh, the developmental uh, way that consciousness evolves in one's questing for identity each step up acts like a filter in which you take whatever your experiences are and you filter them through this particular consciousness such that the same reality through different filters is going to come out looking exceedingly different. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good way of discriminating, like in terms of what you just said, well, pe- people will see what tend to see, you know, and, it, and we're all biased, and I think we're biased because of the particular filter that we use. So that if, if, if you have a, uh, a, 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 if your consciousness has evolved that is primarily, um, let's say, negative for the moment, then that's, that's what you're going to see, and that's what you're going to be attracted to, or positive, or, or mixed, or what have you. So that so now it's so from my vantage point, it's not a coincidence that people gravitate to whomever they gravitate to. But the reason they gravitate to them is that they're really experiencing internal and external reality through the lens of a particular uh, consciousness. So for me, the, the, one of the problems in consciousness stuff is it's usually taken as a block. It's unitary. It's not. It's not. And if you and if you view it as a progression of consciousnesses. I think the individual differences become much more readily understandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just fascinating stuff. Oh, this is great. I think on this note, we're, in, we're not. We're never going to end here. We're okay, you know, I was going to. I was thinking the same thing. I'm looking at the clock, and and uh, this has been a delight, and uh, and uh, we should great. do it again. I, I believe, uh, and, and frankly, for me, the timing is great because as I've told you. Uh, this was an unusual experience for me today, so why shouldn't this continue to be? This is very good. Great. Good. Well, sleep well, and I envy the fact that you get to walk down a beautiful New York street uh, 
uh, heading back to your house and and uh... well, this particular, as you know, this particular area. I've been here for forty three years, and and this this to me gets magical. I love this particular area. Oh, Greenwich Village! That little part of Greenwich Village is, will Just always right be in my here soul. Is special, really special area. Yeah, no question. Look, this has been a pleasure. I really, we must uh, continue on with this. By the way, you're a very good interviewer. Yeah, oh, I good, good. And I, I, it's, it was, feels less like an interviewer and more like a conversation. Part of it is my own selfishness, where I wanted to, like, you know, no, 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 I wanted no, no, to no, ask you questions for no, my no, own. No, I don't use that word. It's self-interest, and why not? You know, yeah. in my book, uh, if you read it, which by the way, I urge you read it. It's, a, it's, it's really good. It's, um, it's well worth it. But in it, I track. Uh, a, a lot of autobiographical references because, uh, well, first of all, Jung did it, and from my vantage point, who knows me better than me? And if I'm going to make my point and try to verify my experience, that I, I, I need to use my experience so that it's um, fairly uh, it's fairly unorthodox, but I think I do it in a, in a reasonably objective way to prove the point. So why not? What, what, what's wrong with that? I mean, what's wrong with using yourself as a sample of one? And and that's exactly the the content of my blog where I've been very, you know, I've been I've been shying away. There's lots of interesting stuff I could I could. Put no, on I think my blog. you personally you got great great stories. If they were boring, like who cares? But you have you have a good way. That's why I said you you, you sound like you can write fiction. You, you tell a good story, and that and that's what people are interested in. They, yeah. You know, it's like you could take anything and make it into an interesting story, or take great material and ruin it because you can't can't talk about it well and um the one of the things that's happened is i have i realized that i have people have benefited from my experiences and i and they've told me in no uncertain terms well so, then that's the payoff you know yeah, I mean, very much so. the, the proof is in the pudding good well sleep well terrific good night good night now wow um that went great uh I thought it was a really interesting mix of his analytical dissection of something that, that to me is magic and also some deeply personal stories, both from him and, and a lot from me, uh, that elk story. I, I never had the occasion to actually write that elk story down. Uh, it's so goofy in a funny way. And, and I mean, I literally stand up and, uh, and you know scream into the black void to leave me alone, and and this thing chooses not to leave me alone. So I'm glad I got to share that story. I was actually considering editing that out. I was considering editing a bunch of stuff out because it was so personal, and I left it all in. Um, part of the reason I leave it in is because I'm not sure if anyone ever makes it to the end of these conversations. So if you did make it this far, thank you so much for your patience, and I hope you got something out of it. Bye-bye.